Hannah Staver, and this is Ohio Politics Explained, a podcast where you give us 15 minutes and we give you all the news you need to sound smart and impress your friends when you go out this weekend. Welcome back to another episode of Ohio Politics Explained, the Trump indictment edition. This week, we're diving into Ohio's reaction to the arrest of the former president, what the state Supreme Court had to say about transgender people changing their birth certificates, what you need to know before you go vote in May, and why there's thousands of people on the waiting list for in-home health care. This week, I'm joined by our fearless and fabulous bureau chief, Anthony Shoemaker. Fearless and fabulous. (laughs) Well, I use those same words to describe you, Anna. Oh, there you go. Well, our first topic is Donald Trump. The former president pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts in a Manhattan court on Tuesday. The allegations were that he falsified business records to conceal payments to porn star Stormy Daniels just before the 2016 election in order to hide the extramarital affair. Now, Trump's attorney called this a political persecution and election interference at the highest level in history. But former Ohio Governor John Kasich, who also ran for president in 2016, said that this indictment in combination with the other legal troubles that President Donald Trump is facing means there's, quote, no way he can go back to the White House. That's what John Kasich says. You know, people have underestimated Donald Trump before. I mean, it's it, it's all a matter of where things land with who's he running against. You know, is it is it Trump and Biden? Is it Trump and someone else? Uh, does Trump get through the primary with DeSantis? I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces here. And what we've seen so far this week is the base has kind of come up and rallied behind Donald Trump a bit. And the Ohio congressional delegation is lockstep, you know, from George and Vance and others. Yeah. And people should keep in mind that this isn't the only potential case that he's facing. There is a grand jury investigation currently into Georgia into Trump's efforts possibly to change the outcome of that state's 2020 election. And the Justice Department is still probing into how he handled classified documents. So like theoretically, he could be in three separate cases by the time, maybe by the time we get to Iowa. I don't know. Yeah. And there are some that argue that, you know, those cases are stronger than the New York case. Um, uh, Some people on the Democratic side would have preferred to see one of those cases go forward rather than have run the risk of, of Trump being acquitted in in the New York case or, or something. But there's talking about the New York case wouldn't even get to court to like December or something. So that would put it right in the middle <laughs> yeah. of primary season. And that, to be fair, I don't think that's terribly unusual given like the speed at which like cases process through the judicial system because Trump's team is entitled to discovery. They're entitled to look through all of this evidence and they're they're supposed to get a reasonable amount of time in which they can do this. But I mean, obviously, a lot of this is going to be unfolding in 2024. We can't separate it from the fact that it's going to be he's going to be under indictment while running for president. But if they stick to the normal primary, uh, the normal debate schedule, for example, you could be having Republican primary debates in August of this year. So it's closer than people think. Yeah. Our second. It's already April. Oh, four months from now. (sighs) I know. People are already talking about 2026. That blows my mind. (laughs) Our second topic deals with birth certificates. So back in 2020, a federal court ruled that the Ohio Department of Health had to process requests to amend birth certificates from transgender people. Basically, it violated the Equal Protection Clause. So advocates for LGBTQ rights claimed victory, but that wasn't the end of the story. So... To understand what happened next, you need to understand how someone changes a birth certificate. So if you want to change the name of a baby you adopt, or if there was a mistake on your original birth certificate, or if you're transgender, the process is the same. You petition your county probate court, who sends the change order to the Ohio Department of Health, who then issues the new certificate. There's no other way to do it. 
at least in that, not in Ohio. So that's what a Clark County woman named Haley Adelaide did, except her local probate court said, sorry, this is an amendment, not a correction. And Ohio law doesn't give us the authority to do that. So she appealed. The appeals court sided with the probate court. And this week it came before the state Supreme Court. Yeah. And wow, this, you know, this is just the latest in, in all the culture war fights. And then you also have the interesting fact that like Columbus and Cincinnati filed briefs in support of her case, arguing that Ohio permits a wide array of other alterations to uh, birth certificates. Yeah. And what's really going on here, like why we need to get this sorted out is that uh, Cuyahoga, Franklin, Hamilton, those big three C county probate courts are processing these. They can process them in like a week or two. And ODH is issuing these new birth certificates under this federal ruling. So some counties are doing this. Some counties are saying they don't have the legal authority to do it. So we kind of got to sort out who is correct. And then we got to figure out what we do next, right? If the law as it stands, Ohio Revised Code, permits these changes, then we just need to go through that process for everyone in every county. If it doesn't, then, you know, as Justice Pat Fisher put it, like, does this require a legislative change? Do lawmakers need to change ORC code? Yeah, he was kind of pushing it back that this should go back to uh, the people across the street here. Yeah, I I just, given the makeup of the legislature, I don't see that happening. So it might be like ODH has to do some rulemaking to change its process for approving changes. But we'll wait and see, basically. Like, honestly, like we don't know when the court is going to issue its decision on this. Could be days, could be weeks, could be months. They do it at their own pace. (laughs) They're on their own calendar. Our third topic is voting, specifically what you need to know about how Ohio's voting laws have changed before you go vote in May. First and foremost, if you're going to need a valid state ID if you want to cast your ballot, not only in May, but November, just going forward. Right. And you need that ID even if you vote in person at the Board of Elections before Election Day. Yes. So we used to let you validate your ID with like utility bills and other things. Uh Uh-uh. Now it's going to be a valid state ID. And if you don't have a driver's license and you can't afford one for whatever reason, or you know somebody like that, um, you can get a free state identification card as part of this new election law if you are 17 or older and you don't have a driver's license. Right. And yes, that was written into the uh, legislation. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot of pushback about this. This was probably the most notable change of this election law. And it's just something to keep in mind, because, you know, if you forget your wallet in the car, you're going to have to go back out, bring it back in, get in line again. Kind of a pain in the butt. But I think most people usually have their driver's license on them when they go vote anyway. That was one of the things that... um, was it Secretary of State Frank LaRose had said about this as it was moving through the legislative process? Like 90% of people already do this. Yeah, I mean, but you, you have some people that don't have driver's licenses, don't have photo IDs, and they use those utility bills to vote. You Now, under the new law, you still do not, you still can vote by mail without a photo ID. You can use the last or your social security number to vote. Yeah, because while the state ID is free, you might have to go hunt down a new copy of your birth certificate if you don't have that. And sometimes there's fees for the courts to reissue birth certificates or if you've lost your social security card, like all that documentation to get a a free state ID, you've still actually got to have a hold of. Right. And early voting's already started for the May elections um, around the state. Our fourth and final topic is about the thousands of Ohioans who aren't getting in-home health care. So here's the deal. Ohio sets its own reimbursement rates for Medicaid providers. Even though it's a federal program, we decide how much to pay people. Uh, And that pretty much dictates how much their employees earn. So for in-home aides, not nurses, the current rate is about $12 per hour. And that's less than you can make at like McDonald's and Amazon Warehouse. And therefore, there's a real shortage of those employees. 
And it's the same for licensed nurses. They can make a lot more in a hospital or nursing home setting. And so advocates say the rates are so low that 4,000 Ohioans aren't getting the care that they're eligible for. They just don't have people to provide that care. And they make an argument that's really interesting that that can cost the state more money because when those people go into assisted living, Medicaid still has to pick up that bill and it can be quadruple what an in-home nurse would have been. Yeah. And it's more expensive to have people in nursing homes and getting care at home. You know, and you talk to the, uh, the family uh, here in suburban Columbus about what they were dealing with. And it was fascinating how the home health care aide had to go through two different agencies to yeah. get the hours to take care of the same child. Yeah, that was really sad. And I thought like, gosh, like she, so Christine Hess was her name. She is a licensed nurse and she's helping this little girl who was tragically injured by a babysitter who left her in an unsafe sleep situation. It was just like, awful as a mother. I was like, (gasps) like, that's your worst fear. But so Christine is providing care and the mom really trusts her and they developed this bond, which was hard after a babysitter had really violated her trust. But you're reluctant to leave your kid with anyone else. Yeah. But she needs round the clock care. And so Christine offered to work two full time jobs, essentially, for two different agencies to give her like sometimes like 80 hours a week so that she has someone that she trusts, that's reliable, that does this care. Like not every nurse is that kind of hero. But (laughs) and she also got really lucky that eventually her sister, who was a nurse, decided to take a $10 per hour pay cut to fill in the rest of her care gap. And that's pretty amazing. But like she recognizes she's really lucky. She met like Christine, who's like, yeah, I'll work eight hours a week for two different agencies. And a sister who's like, yes, I'll take a massive pay cut to help you out. But like you said, you know, could you imagine what that cost would be to the state if this child needing 24 hour care had to be put in some kind of a home of some kind? much higher cost. Yeah. And the mom, her name is Kayla. She's like, look, that isn't an option for me. She's like, I wouldn't like her daughter is eligible for that, but she doesn't want that. And when they brought her home from the hospital, initially they were on a wait list for nearly two months to even get Christine to even find care to get started. And during that time, Thankfully, I guess her job gave her an unpaid leave of of absence, but her her partner lost his job. So they had no income coming in for two months, essentially. And they lost their home. They lost a lot of stuff. They had to move in with her mother. Like it was kind of a hot mess. Yeah. And the, the governor is looking to raise that reimbursement. Yes. But not enough, according to some people. Yeah. So he would take that 12 to 16. But what advocates say is to have parity, right? So everybody in this industry, like nurses in nursing homes and nurses or like, you know what I mean? That it would have to go up to like $20 per hour. Right. That's for in-home AIDS, not nurses. Sorry. There's like different reimbursement rates depending on what your education level is, right? So those those home health care aides, those are the people that help with cooking, cleaning, sorting medication, getting you to doctor's visits, like all the non like medical stuff, which can really help somebody stay at home longer. That those people make twelve. DeWine wants to give them sixteen, but advocates say twenty is on par with what they're getting paid elsewhere. Yeah, I mean that's really hard work. I mean, especially oh, yeah. when you think about, you know, some of the the people they're caring for can't probably walk on their own or need special care. Yeah. And if you need, but like if you only need like one to two hours a day of cooking, cleaning and sorting your meds, like you probably don't need to be in assisted living. Right. But we'll see how it goes. Uh, Obviously the house still has the budget uh, eventually here, probably pretty soon here. They're going to pass it and we'll kind of see where they come down. Uh, But one more thing before you go. This one's fun. Yes. A Republican representative from central Ohio made headlines this week for not graduating from MIT. David Dobos has been calling himself a graduate of the prestigious institution since the 1990s when he was running for Columbus City School Board. But 
it turns out he never got a degree. He attended. He did. He attended a couple of different times over multiple years, but never completed a degree program. I visited Harvard's campus once. Started using that on my resume. I went there for a debate tournament in high school. Hey, there you go. No, <laughs> uh, no. I, but it's, it's one of those questions that we have about people, right? Like he is on the higher education committee. He obviously ran for Columbus City School Board and represented himself as a graduate of a really prestigious uh, institution. And I think sometimes voters, like they get a little upset about that, right? Because they're like, I voted for you because I thought you had these qualifications that it turns out you didn't have. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting is when you, the story that uh, the dispatch did uh, on Davos and when they contacted MIT, MIT said he was there as an undergraduate from 1973 to 77 and 78 to 79. So he was there long enough to get a degree. Yeah. Although if you look at graduation rates, like OSU's, I think their graduate, their six year graduation rate is like 85%. So yeah. they're still like after six years, not everybody gets a degree. That's true. And also from also there in the eighties. Yeah. So I'm not sure what happened there. Uh, the representative isn't returning anybody's calls. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see, but he did, they did scrub his official bio on the, for the Ohio legislature. It now just says attended MIT. Accurate. Ohio Politics Explained is brought to you by the USA Today Network Ohio Bureau. You can find us on Twitter at Ohio Explained. And if you want to learn more about any of the topics we covered, check us out online at any of the newspapers in our network, like the Worcester Daily Record. That's the-daily-record.com. dash 